Good morning. Take your Bibles and turn to the first chapter of Luke. Luke chapter 1, we began a new series last week uh, leading up to the Christmas season, talking about the birth of Jesus, all the things that went into the preparation for that, the events that transpired prior to his birth. And we may even go beyond Christmas uh, in the book of Luke. But Luke chapter 1, talking about the incredible story of the greatest man who ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you skip down to the end of chapter 1, down around verse 78 and 79, Luke describes the birth of Jesus this way from Old Testament prophecy. Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Interesting way to refer to the birth of Jesus. The sunrise from on high shall visit us. The night before that sunrise was a long, long, dark night. But for those that were faithful, to those who clung to the promise of God, God's word gave them some bright flashes of hope that one day that night would end and they would experience that sunrise from on high. The prophet Isaiah had promised that before the glory of the Lord would be revealed, there would come, according to Isaiah 40, a voice of one calling. In the wilderness, or in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. And then the prophet Malachi said the same thing as he penned the final words of the Old Testament. See? I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. All these promises of God and all these clues from him. And yet when Luke wrote what we're looking at today in chapter 1, when he wrote his gospel, more than 400 years had passed since Malachi's time, and there had been no word of prophecy from God. No prophet of God to speak, no visions of any sort, no signs from God for over 400 years. Now, 4,000 years ago at that time, God had promised the Messiah would come. He promised that in the Garden of Eden, right? Because when he was announcing the curse upon the serpent, he said, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. A prophecy of the virgin birth of Jesus. You'll bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And Jesus did exactly that. So 4,000 years before, God had promised the Messiah would come. He had prophesied it throughout the Old Testament times, given hints through his servants, the prophets. For the Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and be with child and shall name him Emmanuel. All of those different prophecies. But now, 400 years of silence from God had come and gone. But the long darkness was about to experience 
the sunrise from on high, because the fullness of time had now come, as Paul put it in Galatians 4.4. God's great plan that he had laid in eternity before time began is now beginning to activate. And in my, what Lee Carter Maynard would have called my sanctified imaginator, <laughs> I, I, I imagine angels beginning to scurry around, busily preparing for, for the dawn of this new age. And the beginning scenes in the early focus of the activity would be the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. So Luke introduces us next to two major players in God's eternal plan, a husband and a wife, an exemplary couple named Zacharias and Elizabeth. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. So Zacharias, probably just an ordinary country priest, one of an estimated 20,000 priests living in the region of Palestine at that time. These priests... When the Jewish people returned from Babylonian captivity, all right, the 70-year captivity in Babylon, when they got back, they organized the priests into 24 different divisions. Each division had about 900 to 1,000 priests. Zacharias was a part of the 8th division, the division of Abijah. Each of those 24 divisions would serve for two one-week periods each year. And of those priests in any certain division, 56 of them were chosen by lot to participate each day. Zacharias' name was a popular priestly name. It meant the Lord has remembered. And in his case, it would prove to be dramatically prophetic. Elizabeth also was of priestly descent, having come from the family of Aaron, the first high priest of Israel. She had the same name as Aaron's wife, Elizabeth, a preferred name for a priest's wife. And interestingly enough, her name pointed to the promise-keeping of God. And the promise of the Messiah was beginning to be fulfilled. Now verse 6 tells us that Zacharias and Elizabeth were both righteous in the sight of God. Beautiful people in God's sight. Doesn't mean that they were sinless, but their lives were obedient to and conformed to the law of God, the law of Moses, as the rest of verse 6 says. They walked blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But, just as was the case for Abraham and Sarah early on, so it was with Zacharias and Elizabeth. They had not been able to have children. And the verse here says, because why? Elizabeth was barren. In that ancient Hebrew culture of that time, 
barrenness placed a huge burden on the woman, the childless woman. Hebrew culture at that time viewed barrenness as a disgrace, even a punishment from God for some type of sin in the woman's life. Barrenness was considered the fault, pretty much, of the woman. In fact, if you go down to verse 25 of chapter 1, Elizabeth calls her barrenness her disgrace. The text says the two were both advanced in years, so now it's too late to have children. And they had probably resigned themselves to that fact. There was no hope for them to have a child. Those spotted, worn, wrinkled hands of this righteous couple would never hold a child of their own. So they thought. They didn't know that dawn was about to break. A special sunrise was coming. Look at verse 8. It came about while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. The Jewish Mishnah states that before each of the two daily services, four sets of lots were used to determine the participants, what priests would do which duties. In this case, the incense lot finally fell to Zacharias. And in an instant, he was at the height of his personal history. Because you see, the honor... <clears throat> Excuse me. The honor of offering incense inside the temple was the greatest event that could have happened in all of his earthly existence. This was an incredible opportunity. Most priests never had the opportunity to offer the incense inside the temple. It was, it was selected by the drawing of lots. And most never had the lot drawn for their name. And a priest was never allowed to offer it more than once in his lifetime. So this is a once-in-a-lifetime experience that Zacharias probably thought he would never get to do, but now his name has been chosen. Don't you think his adrenaline would have been flowing quite a bit? Don't you think he would have been excited? And don't you know that he couldn't wait to tell Elizabeth my name, I was chosen by Lot. I get to go inside the temple. I get to offer the incense for the people. So the day and the appointed time came for his service to the Lord. He stood there with his fellow priests in the heart of the gleaming temple there in the court of the priests where the sacrifice would be made. Outside the court of the priests would be the court of Israel where all the faithful worshipers would be praying, then would come the moment for Zacharias to step into the holy place inside the temple. As he does so, directly in front of him would be the veil that separated the holy of holies from the holy place. On that veil, that embroidered curtain, would be cherubim woven in scarlet and blue and purple and gold. 
To his right, as he would enter, would be the table of showbread. To his left stood the golden candlestick. And directly in front of him was this horned golden altar of incense. Zacharias would proceed to that altar of incense directly in front of the veil and purify it. Then he would wait for the signal to offer the incense so that, as it were, with the sacrifice on the altar being offered up and the people praying, their prayers would be wrapped in the cloud of the incense, as it were, as those prayers would ascend to heaven. The altar of incense represented and was a type of the prayers of the people. But suddenly, his heart almost stopped at what happened next. Look at verse 11. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw him, and fear gripped him. There's no indication what this angel looked like. We do know that the angel's appearance was dramatic because of the extreme fear that fell upon Zacharias. Now this angel of the Lord was none other than who? It's Gabriel, whose name means Mighty One of God. You know the last time that we hear of Gabriel in the Bible prior to this time? 500 years before when he spoke to Daniel in the book of Daniel. Interestingly enough, about the Messiah that would come. 500 years before we read about Gabriel. And now, after 400 years of silence from God, that's about to be broken because the fullness of time had come, Gabriel appears again. And God is ready to bring the forerunner of his Messiah on the scene. And I look at verse 12 and I think that has to be an understatement. <laughs> Zacharias was troubled when he saw him and fear gripped him. What would you have done? How would you have responded? Would we have passed out? Would we have been so filled with fear that we turned around and, and ran out of the temple? I, I don't know, but I think that's probably quite an understatement that he was troubled. He needed some reassurance. So in verse 13, the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. The angel Gabriel says, your petition has been heard. Now what petition or prayer has Zacharias just prayed to the Lord? Well, some scholars believe that he had just prayed for a son. But given his unbelief, when he's told he's going to have a son, others believe, well, he wasn't asking for that. Others believe he was praying for God to send his Messiah to Israel. Whatever the case, I don't think Zacharias would have ever dreamed that his having a son would be the beginning of the answer to that. But Gabriel had spoken. Prophecy, which had ceased at the close of the Old Testament, now occurred for the first time in 400 years. Notice verse 13. 
The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition's been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Wow. What a bombshell for Zacharias. He would have a son. And when naming John, which means God has been gracious or God has shown favor. And indeed, in nine months' time, a son would be born as a gracious gift from God. A son that would be a joy and delight to his parents. A son in whose birth many would rejoice. A son that would be great in the sight of the Lord. Later on, Jesus himself would say of John, in Matthew 11 and verse 11, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Next to Christ Jesus, Zechariah and Elizabeth's son would develop a soul that was second to none. And what a perpetual joy he would be to his old parents. Gabriel then revealed what would go into their son's spiritual development. John was never to drink wine or any other fermented drink. That was a part of the Nazarite vow, which we assume that John was under. That set apart a man to be totally and especially devoted to God. So John would never take strong drink, and the rest of that vow, as we understand it, nor would his hair ever be cut. He would never touch a dead body. All of that was part of the vow. And Gabriel says he would be filled with the Holy Spirit from what time? While yet in his mother's womb. Jump ahead in the story to what we'll look at next week just for a second. When Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, what happens to Elizabeth? The baby jumps, leaps in her womb. Yeah. Such a total invasion by the Spirit of God was unprecedented, but it would be surpassed when God's own son would be born. But Gabriel then prophesied the effects of John's ministry. He would bring many of the people of Israel back to the Lord. John's ministry would so affect the hearts of his people that it would revolutionize the, the way they lived in their homes, it would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Parents would awaken to their parental responsibilities. All of his ministry was to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. He was the forerunner. So picture, <coughs> picture old Zacharias here. He's serving in the heart of the temple. The light from that golden candlestick there on his left reveals the veil before the Holy of Holies. And the altar of incense glistens in the light. The aroma of the incense swirls about him. I mean, this is the grandest, greatest day in his life. 
Maybe he has just prayed for the Messiah to come and a supernatural being appears. Heart attack. Cardiac arrest, you think, but the being speaks. He promises a son whose name evokes the favor of God. He promises and prophesies regarding this son's character, his spiritual formation, his ministry. He invokes the final lines of the Old Testament as the playbook that his son would follow. And notice Zacharias' response. He responds in disbelief. Verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Scholars speculate how old they were. Some say 75 to 85 years old. But Zechariah shouldn't have doubted. He knew the scriptures. He knew how God brought Isaac to Abraham and Sarah when Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90. He should have known that if God could do it once, he could do it again. And here he is being confronted by an angel, a supernatural being. He knew this message had to be from God, don't you think? And yet he spoke in disbelief. And this was serious. Because in his doubt... He implicitly denied the power that would be so central to the gospel message. Namely, the power of the resurrection. I mean, if God could not give Zacharias' wife Elizabeth the power to conceive, if God couldn't do that, then how could he ever raise Jesus from the dead? Zacharias' unbelief was undermining the entire gospel. Because the coming of the Messiah demanded belief. So in verse 19, the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And I've been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which shall be fulfilled in their proper time. Gabriel says, I stand in the presence of God. I, I'm, I, I'm, I know what he said. God told me to come to you to tell you this. I, I'm in the know here. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. But With Zacharias' unbelief comes a penalty well fitted for the offense. His tongue which had uttered unbelief, was struck speechless. This aged priest is going to experience nine months of silence. Plenty of time to reflect on this situation, don't you think? So in verse 21, the people were waiting for Zacharias, were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And it came about when the days of his priestly service were ended that he went back home. And after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. She kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me 
to take away my disgrace among men. You know, it didn't take long for a priest to offer the incense. And there was a belief that if you tarried inside the temple or, or took too long, that God would strike you dead. So you didn't, you didn't waste time in there. You didn't start looking around and, and things. I mean, you, you did it and then you left. And then you would go out and pronounce a traditional blessing upon the people before they would leave. Well, outside the temple, the worshipers are there. They've been praying. They've watching the smoke of the sacrifice ascend up to heaven. But they kept waiting for Zacharias to come out and pronounce the blessing upon them. And he doesn't come out. And the longer he takes, the more nervous they get. Maybe God did strike him dead. But then suddenly, out he comes, I would imagine, with a strange look upon his face. And when he finally emerges, he says nothing. He can't pronounce the blessing because he's mute. And the word mute there can be used for being both mute and deaf. And in verse 62... When you get down there, after the child is born and they're trying to figure out what name to give him, it says that his friends made signs to communicate with him, which would imply that he was probably deaf as well as not being able to speak. Now, don't you really feel for Zacharias? How many of us would have responded in the same way if we would have been in his shoes? And can't you feel his frustration? He has all of this that he wants to share with Elizabeth, his wife, and he can't speak. How frustrating and how difficult it would have been to have communicated to Elizabeth what Gabriel had told him. That had to be hard. But evidently he succeeded. And in fulfillment of God's promise, Elizabeth conceives. Her old body experiences a life growing within her womb. They both had to have been ecstatic with excitement. And she says, this is the way that the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. And don't you think from this point on their faith grew and grew and grew? And in six months, in six months, they would have a visitor come to their house. A kinsman, a relative, Mary, who would come and share what Gabriel had said to her. And they would encourage her. They would nurture her faith. They would hear Mary sing her song called the Magnificent. And speechless Zacharias would one day sing his own song of faith called the Benedictus. And as I read this, I realize there are a lot of details that you would expect only from an eyewitness account. Like the fact that Gabriel stood on which side of the altar? 
the right-hand side. All these colorful little tidbits remind me that Luke, as we talked about last week, was striving to give an exact account of the things that happened. Using first-hand information he gathered from eyewitnesses, don't you think Luke had to have interviewed Zacharias and Elizabeth? How else would he have known that Gabriel stood at the right-hand side of the altar? I mean, all these little bits and pieces of information, and yes, I know that God and His Holy Spirit could inspire Luke to write things that he didn't know about at all. That can happen, but what did Luke say back here at the beginning? It seemed fitting for me in verse 3, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning. So in verse 4, that Theophilus might know the exact truth. Luke was an investigator. I think he probably interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus. And yet, I also realize that while Luke is a wonderfully careful historian, folks, this stuff isn't just about the past. Luke is laying a foundation here for the life of Jesus. All of these events we look at right now are pointing forward in time, looking ahead to the time when Jesus, the Son of God, would be born. They all point prophetically to the future. They all help us predict what we're about to encounter in the life and ministry of Jesus, the greatest man that ever lived. And what stupendous spiritual events were on the horizon. The sunrise was about to come. In John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29, Jesus speaks some words that are penetratingly clear. It says there, they said therefore to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Everything we're looking at right now is looking ahead to the one that God will send, Jesus. This is his story. His story. And his story is history. History. True history. So the question then becomes, not do you believe in John the Baptist, but do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus, the one God has sent to be the Savior of the world? That's what it's all about here. And the one that would announce his coming and present him to the world, John the Baptist, the forerunner, the Elijah that was to come, is now going to be born. And the fullness of time was coming for the Messiah. It's an exciting story. And we'll pick up here next week. But for today, do you believe in the one that God has sent? Christ Jesus. I pray that you do. And if you don't, and you need to find out more about him, if you need to learn of him, or if you already know, but you've just never accepted him as your Lord and Savior, why not do that today? Take the next step in your faith. That brings you to Christ. That's a decision you need to make today. Take the next step.
whatever that is for you. Let's stand and sing.